This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Happy Sunday, everybody. I am recording this again on a Friday, actually. So it is um, it is actually not a Sunday that I'm recording this. It's Friday. But you are hearing this on Sunday, hopefully. So happy Sunday, everybody. Can you dig it? I can. And it has been a whirlwind of a week, ladies and gentlemen. Whirlwind of a week. A lot of stuff happening in the world from uh, politics to sports to a bunch of other NFL football kicked off this week. Phenomenal kickoff with the Patriots and Cowboys. Happy for my guys Tom Brady and Dak Prescott, Dak Prescott, especially since he's coming back from that horrific leg injury, you know, so that was excellent to go out and see him do his thing. And, um, you know, my Browns play uh, the Kansas City Chiefs this afternoon, and I am super excited, and I am also very, very nervous because usually when Browns, I'm a Browns fan, if you guys didn't uh, pick that up by now, uh, usually when Browns fans get their hopes up like this, we uh, we get vapidly disappointed. I mean, I mean, it just it evaporates in seconds. So it's um, I'm hoping that this is not the case. I do not think it's going to be the case personally, but it could be because this is the Browns, and you know, if you follow NFL football at all, then you will know that it is skeptical at best that the Browns will do well. Anyways, so with the news coming out this week, particularly in the realm of vaccinations, I'm not going to get into the whole vaccine debate. I'm I've, I did that a little bit last week. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna delve into it again. That's not the point of this whole thing, but. I do think it's worth mentioning because I think that we have all established the fact that the COVID-19 pandemic, at least the serious one that had us locking ourselves in our houses and everything else for the vast majority of 2020 is over. The pandemic is over. But like most things in life, it's not that simple. So there are going to be repercussions of everything that we do in life. There is a cause and effect thing that happens. And, you know, if maybe you've heard of it in grade school or something. What happens with basically everything that happens in our lives is going to have some effect that comes out of it at the end of the day. Now, what we need to do inside of this thing, what most people should do, is look at the things rationally being say, saying, like, okay, if, if we do this, what could potentially happen that's bad? What could potentially happen that's good? Unfortunately, with our current ruling leadership, political class, whatever you want, that really doesn't happen a lot of the times. And with the pandemic, a lot of very, very, I think, wrong things were done in the pandemic that were going to affect a lot of people, particularly the citizens of our country. And now I think we're beginning to see the repercussions with everything that has happened from 
the last 18 months of the coronavirus pandemic, pre-vaccine especially. We are beginning to see that come out in society in very, very disturbing ways. And so it's not that the COVID-19 pandemic is necessarily over. It's that the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, I think, are just beginning. And this is only the tip of the iceberg for where this could potentially go. I hope we don't go much further into the freezing water, but... I wrote this in December of last year, and you know, obviously, a lot of things have happened since then. So I might have to, you know, you know, update myself or whatever here for the longest time and see where I've been at. But here we go. Let's get into it. We'll kind of see where we are. So, out of darkness, light. Up until now, or whatever. I don't really know. So we are not rounding third. I wrote we're rounding third in the post. We are sliding into home. So vaccines are there. First responders, healthcare professionals, those critically ill are getting a lot better. The Delta variant is obviously putting a dent in that, but the out of the original COVID patients, it's basically all over by this point. And this is, by all means, a miracle. Never in a million years did I think that a vaccine, which can take up to decades to develop, and especially in the previous times, for a disease that we had no prior knowledge of, or the specific strain of the first strain of COVID-19 at least, that has affected this many people at such broad of a scale could be developed and distributed in less than nine months after the whole shit show began. The people involved need to be praised as heroes. I've called for a national holiday before, and I'll keep calling for one. The point of all this being, the pandemic is finally over. These last 18 months and all they have entailed have been tough on all of us. Pain, the one comparison to rule them all, has been constant and an innumerable amount of forms. We almost ripped each other's throats out a couple dozen times by now. It's nothing but the time-tested strength of our country that we're still standing and in one piece, and even that's in jeopardy in the events of the last couple of weeks. But the effects of these last 18 months are not over. Far from it. The week that President Trump closed the country and we all collectively shit ourselves, I wrote the post not about the coronavirus, but about the effects of the coronavirus. I cited the Patriot Act, the piece of legislation that was signed after 9-11 which is the 20th anniversary this weekend. I should have said that earlier. So the 20th anniversary of 9-11 is this weekend. The Patriot Act, while its intentions were good, turned out to be a horrible decision in the long run. It trapped us into trillion dollars of endless war funding, sent thousands of our troops to be killed, traumatized, and wounded with next to nothing to show for it, and destabilized an entire region of the world for the worst. And we've seen that recently with the recent plot of Afghanistan, all the shit that happened with that. We did not check our emotions and look to the consequences when we signed the Patriot Act. And it cost us. We wanted revenge more than we wanted what was right. I warned in that post and podcast that I created a couple weeks or months ago that if we did the same thing when handling COVID-19, the effects could be even more catastrophic. For one, they would all take place relived, at least the majority of us, and the war on terror was far, far away from us. Second, it wasn't an isolated group of people being affected, like the military or people from the Middle East. It would be all of us. Lastly, it would affect every area of the way in which we lived. We couldn't just change the channel and look away at an unfavorable headline. They would be everywhere. We would know and see all. We couldn't afford to look away. Well, I don't mean to toot my own horn here, but we, we fucked it up just as bad as I thought we could potentially could, and probably worse. There are many scary things about the pandemic, but nothing about any disease is scarier than human nature. People are the ultimate variables, a proverbial box of chocolates. You often don't know what you're going to get. 
And we got a whole lot of shit this past 18 months that no one saw coming from a million fucking miles away. No one gives a lot of humans credits for how horrible, like actually horrible, not, oh, this person was mean to me on a social network horrible. We can be. But we can be pretty damn bad when pushed to it. We can topple empires. Rape, pillage, murder, steal, loot, shun our grandchildren from our trust fund of money, the whole nine yards. The thing is, we don't get to see these things very often. It is only until we are pushed beyond the reaches of human nature, of good and evil, to quote Nietzsche, that we can see what can happen. And a lot of it isn't good. What makes movies like The Dark Knight so terrifying is that they show you the true side of human nature that in its most distorted and fucked up ways, and what it can bring people to do once they get there. People in power, people out of power, the possessed, the dispossessed, doesn't matter. If you have a brain and a conscience, you can think the way most people think. And that way isn't always good. These last 18 months have seen the greatest power grab by our government since FDR took control of the White House and served four terms. People aren't allowed to open their businesses fully, some permanently, which is wreaking havoc on their livelihoods, robbing them of their identities, and helping throw their futures under the bus. Our ruling class and their mob enablers, the one perpetuating all this headassery, are going crazy mad with their newfound dominance at the expense of the masses. The scariest thing about all these things is that we don't see all of it. We don't notice the subtleties and the little things that make up the big things until we notice that they are, indeed, big things. And oftentimes we notice them too late, when the damage has already been done. Even though the actual pandemic might be coming to an end, there are numerous pandemics on the horizon, with no quantifiable metric to describe the devastation and horror that they could create. A recent, a re, well, a then-recent example, I should say, sheds light on the one that I, as well as many others, find the most troubling. On November 30th of 2020, Tucker Carlson gave his traditional opening monologue at his nightly show with a focus on the education of America's youth during the pandemic. For those without children or who have wisely opted out of the news cycle in the last few months, a majority of America's school-aged children, almost 60 million of them, haven't been able to go to school in regular capacity. Zoom classrooms have become the norm for children as young as five years old for the past year. I know several families that went through it. And safe to say, it wasn't that pleasant of an experience. Students had trouble paying attention anyways. It's why teachers have things like corny phone pockets that hang on the doors to prevent distraction in the learning environment. And now they had to stare at a laptop with internet access for eight hours a day. That's a New York style forget about it if I had ever heard one. And the data shows this as well. Carlson pulled data from that same report of children, and it wasn't pretty. In St. Paul, Minnesota, 40% of all grades were Fs. For Fairfax, Virginia, Fs rose by 83%. For children with disabilities, overall failing grades have increased by over 100%. It's clear online learning amongst impressionable children with malleable brains clearly didn't work. What's more, children are the lowest demographic in terms of age to die of COVID-19. And the data has shown this even before the schools began to close, and especially now with the Delta variant. They've continued to show this. But yet, our ruling class, enforced by the mob, closed them anyway. Dr. Fauci admitted months ago, or before this post, I should say, in an interview on ABC News, that the school should be opened, even though for the past eight months up until then, nearly everyone had remained closed by his advice. But then Carlson dropped the hammer and asked the toughest question that no one in our ruling class, nor mob, particularly Dr. Fauci, wants to answer. They've been ducking it for weeks and for months and for good reason. 
because they have no answer for it. None that makes sense anyways. Quote, What happens when you lock children in their rooms in front of screens and prevent them from experiencing human contact? End quote. Hint, it's, it's not good. And you've seen the social dilemma? It was blown way out of proportion, but it's not pretty. It's a bunch of former ruling class members and mob affiliates expressing what feels like true sorrow for their sins they've unleashed upon the world, specifically amongst young people. Social psychologist Jonathan Haidt and others have commented on this as well. In fact, we've seen what this can do to adults, who are supposed to be much more rational than children. It turns out that when you lock grown men and women in their homes for months at a time, pump their heads with anger and frustration, and light off a George Floyd lockdown-esque nuke in their nearby vicinity, lots of bad things can transpire. When we can't expect those who are supposed to be in most control of their behavior to control themselves, how can we expect highly impressionable children to do the same? In the last eight months since December of 2020, according to the CDC, 42 children between the ages of 5 and 15 have died because of COVID-19, and it's a tragedy. However, in the year of 2017, 522 children between the ages of 5 and 14 died by suicide. What drives suicide? Well, many factors, but the rise of social media usage, social isolation, and echo chambers, as echoed by Heights Research, are deliberately enhancing it particularly among young women and girls. And that's of children in good education systems. But what of those young people who live in poverty, where they can't pay good teachers enough money to teach at the schools of low income and high crime, where school students of color and minority groups fall behind in greater numbers than those with access to better schools? You can expect those numbers to be much, much higher. And they will be, once the horrific study comes out that shows the effects of this. So we must ask ourselves the question when it comes to our young people. What fate is worse, COVID-19 or deliberately ending your promising life? The choice should be yours. But it's not. With our government ruling class presiding over this issue, nothing is changing anytime soon. With vaccines coming out and being widely distributed by this point, there's too much money, you know, because this could hopefully start to get better. But I wouldn't get your hopes up. There's too much money and too much power involved. I can be a cynical person, but I frankly don't think that's too far out of the question, and I don't think it is after the events these past weeks. There's just too much evidence to that fact. So, even though the light at the end of the COVID-19 tunnel is imminent, I would say, there are more tunnels ahead. This problem with the educational systems isn't going away. If children effectively use, lose a year of school and perhaps more, depending on how the Delta variant continues to mutate, how could they possibly be prepared to move on to their next grade? How could the teachers be prepared to close that gap in education? How could parents deal with the frustrations of their children while balancing all their aspects of their lives? These are intense questions. They're not getting answered, and this is not good. While the beer virus pandemic is over, it is only the Kickstarter, the beginning, for several more pandemics that will and are being currently created in its stead. There are many issues that we are going to have to face after this is all over. Corona fever is a disease that, once it seizes control, does not let go easy. And that motherfucker stays for a long time. You can't get away from it easily. Just like winter, more pandemics are coming. Of the trends that I see, I've narrowed it down to three, generally speaking. We will have to know each one in turn in order to most properly navigate them so that we can, in turn, properly face them. Unfortunately, I think the three of them are unavoidable. They're simply asteroids waiting to crash into the Earth. We can't stop them. But we can try to, our best to prepare for, pre prepare for life after them. We must. A lot depends on it. 
While COVID-19 and the Delta variant are very real threats, we have, to let it, we have let it corrupt our entire way of living. We should take measures and protect those that need protection. But as I alluded to in my original post, we cannot take it too far. Like the Patriot Act, there are going to be consequences. We might not know all of them yet, but they will arrive. Let's start looking into each three of these pandemics that we have yet to face, because corona fever has, a, has officially settled in. Pandemic number one, the economic pandemic. In early 2007, Steve Eisman sat on a rooftop drinking a cup of coffee while looking over New York City. New York City was on fire, an invisible fire, but one that had burned just as hot and destroyed just as much. The housing market had just collapsed, and the financial capital of the world was finding out the hard way that their chickens had come home to roost. Eisman was the top man in a small hedge fund called Front Point Partners, a subsidiary of Morgan Stanley. He hated the big banks. He thought that they were a bunch of greedy asshole fucks. His words, not mine, although I would probably provide a similar analysis. He thought that they defrauded people and ripped them off constantly, even though he worked in the same industry as all of those people, so take his word for what you will. But one day, a chance opportunity changed his life forever. A missed call that was placed to Front Point by accident was traded back, traced back to a man named Greg Lippmann, a young executive at Deutsche Bank, who was in charge of their global asset banking securities trading. Lippmann had been calling around to various funds, wanting to get into the market of betting against something called mortgage-backed securities. Mortgage-backed securities are a derivative asset which get their value from the value of mortgages, which is a loan that you would take out for a large purpose. Most Americans see mortgages as vehicles for buying houses. So, what the chefs over at the big banks decided to do was package a bunch of these mortgages up, throw them in a pot, split them up, and sell them as mortgage-backed securities, unlike a stock or bond. Or not unlike a stock or bond, rather. These financial instruments would get their value from the individual mortgages themselves, which, in a normal world, would get paid every month from a stable party who would pay back the principal and interest on that mortgage every month. They are considered a safe asset to invest in, like a bond or a security of deposit. But, as we've learned about in our discussion of excess, there is one question that needs to be asked. What if the actual thing you're deriving value from does not have any value at all? The answer, the derivative is worthless. It goes to zero. Investors lose all their money. That was what Greg Littman's phone call was about. Littman had recently stumbled upon an analysis by hedge fund manager Michael Burry an eccentric but brilliant hedge fund manager who had discovered that mortgages that made up the mortgage-backed securities market were largely overrated in terms of their quality of credit. Burry then predicted that the mortgage market, and therefore the housing market that it was propped up on, was a time bomb. It was going to go off in 2007, and he wanted it on the action. So Burry went to New York and nearly bankrupted his entire fund by buying something called a credit default swap, which would ensure that the holder of that swap got paid if a mortgage it was betting against would default. The housing market was viewed at the time as the most stable financial pillar of the economy. The banks handed Burry piles of these swaps hand over fist. They laughed him out of every office, quite certain that they had just cleared out an exorbitant amount of cash for next to nothing. But Greg Lippmann didn't laugh. He verified it with his quantitative analysis analyst, his name is Yang, if you've seen The Big Short before, hilarious, who came to the same conclusion that Burry did. The United States financial system was heading into a buzzsaw. 
And that prompted Lippmann to make a phone call to Front Point, who then got Lippmann to meet with their part the partner, Steve Eisman, being the head man. After Lippmann's presentation, Eisman and his partners were blown away by both the arrogance and greed of the banks and the outrageous amount of money that could be made should they be right in betting against them. They went into business with Lippmann and, like Burry, bought as many credit default swaps as they could get their hands on. And all of these men turned out to be right. In 2007, the world financial system almost completely imploded. Five trillion dollars in wealth was wiped off the face of the earth. Eight million people lost their jobs. Six million people lost their homes. The greatest economic recession since the Great Depression dropped the gavel on the United States and world economies. All because a lot of rich guys wanted to get more rich. While Steve Eisman was on the rooftop watching the chaos unfold, he received a call from his number two at Front Point. The bloodbath was only getting worse. However, Front Point's trade on the credit default swaps was skyrocketing. If they sold their position on the trade, they would clear over $1 billion in new money added to the fund. Eisman itself, himself, would clear $200 million. Better yet, they would deliver another kick to the nuts of the people that Eisman despised the most. They would make them hurt more. But Eisman was not happy. In fact, he was quite depressed. He had just gotten word the United States Treasury Secretary, Ben Bernanke, had met with the heads of the banks and offered to bail them out. Eisman couldn't believe it. They were going to get off scot-free, with nothing more than a slap on the wrist and some bad press. Despondent, he told his number two on the phone, quote, I have a feeling, in a few years, people are going to be doing what they always do when the economy tanks. They will be blaming immigrants and poor people. Over this past Thanksgiving break, my family and I went bowling at a local place in a, in a small town outside of Cleveland. It's a nice family-owned business. Lots of kids go there on the weekends with their friends. You can get dinner and two games of bowling for a grand total of about 25 bucks, and it's usually very happy. However, when I walked in, it didn't seem like it usually did. There was a somber mood about the place. People were still having fun. My sister bowled her best game that night, so she definitely was. One might be confused by this, but as soon as I walked in, a sign drawn in Sharpie told you all you needed to know. Quote, if we close down one more time, we go out of business. Please keep clean and be responsible. End quote. Meanwhile, over that same time period, the stock market soared. The Dow Jones hit 30,000 right before Thanksgiving a milestone for that specific financial index, and it's around 35000 now, so it's gone up another, what is that, 20%. Blue chip stock value gone up by 60% since their March lows and the beer virus sucker punched them. Companies like Amazon and Google don't have to worry about closing down. They could just work from home. The money they're saving from their typical operating expenses like Starbucks, cafes, and utilities have helped goose their numbers. They want people to stay home. Silicon Valley rock star Dropbox issued recently that they're going permanently remote. 90% of their workforce can work from wherever they please. It might not be specifically immigrants and poor people, but it's the same story all over again. No matter what the circumstances, whether it be financial irresponsibility or a pandemic, the working class always gets shit on first. Always. Like the bowling alley above, thousands of businesses, more specifically bars and restaurants, are being clobbered over the head by COVID in our ruling class. Not only are they not allowed to operate their businesses, but they are sometimes shamed if they try to do so. The mob doesn't like it when you disobey them. 
Unfortunately, unlike the pandemic, this problem will not go away with the vaccine. Those businesses that went out of business in the pandemic most likely are coming back. They've been completely wiped out of customers, money, and spirit. They simply don't have the reach or the scale to weather a storm this bad. And when the pandemic is over, who knows if they'll have a strength to get off the mat and compete with the big dogs who've done their best to try to crush the competition throughout it. A recent study came out that said that New York City tourism won't recover until the year 2025. Airlines across the nation are in talks of a second government bailout, much like the banks in 2007. We should all hope that they receive that money. Unlike the banks or mortgage-backed securities, these companies provide a service that actually has value, transportation. And what happens when these people get transported? Well, they buy things, many of the time from local small businesses. If tourism dies, more businesses will get slaughtered right alongside it, especially states such as Florida and the aforementioned New York. And let's go there next. Commercial real estate is taking a nosedive. People are running as fast as they can out, out of metropolitan areas due to things like the cost of living and rent. This isn't going to do those local businesses a favor. They're not a McDonald's. They have to care if one of their own one of their only franchise goes under. So where are these people going? Well, quite frankly, to places where they don't have to cost an arm and a leg to live and operate a business. In the past six months before writing this post, Joe Rogan, HP, Oracle, and Tesla have all moved their headquarters to Austin, Texas. Peter Thiel just announced that he was moving his new monster of a company, Palantir, out of Palo Alto to Denver, Colorado. Goldman Sachs is opening a place in West Palm Beach, and it's been lauded in recent places like the Wall Street Journal as the new Wall Street. But don't worry, new businesses are coming to the rescue. Or are they? The week before I wrote this post, it had been a monster week for IPOs, the time where a company could first list stock for public buying and selling. The crown jewel of these IPOs is the massive Silicon Valley mega-unicorn Airbnb. Investors have been salivating over its going public for nearly half a decade. The gig economy startup that revolutionized travel was sought after by nearly every major institutional investor and investment bank in the nation, and it finally got its due. Airbnb boomed to an absolutely astonishing valuation of over $100 billion, one of the largest IPOs on record. DoorDash, the food delivery startup, had its shares climb 80% in its IPO that also happened that past week. These, in theory, are good things. It shows that entrepreneurship can still persevere and cap capture capital and interest in a time where both are about as frugal as you can possibly get. But on this podcast, we don't deal in theory. We deal in reality. The reality is that these companies are the epitome of excessive excess. They're, not ba they're based on potential, not on actual results. Growth, not value. Sizzle, not steak. Airbnb has hundreds of millions poured into it by investors pre-IPO, as has DoorDash. According to Wired, Airbnb lost a total of $674.3 million in 2019, money that could have been better used if you had chucked into a furnace for warmth. DoorDash, a company literally built for the type of environment for massive food delivery that is the coronavirus pandemic, could only squeeze out a measly $23 million profit between March and June of 2020. Their loss is crater the next quarter, going down to a $43 million net loss. This is excessive excess. It's bloating the economy even further than the big stocks could very well be. It's adding to the nonsense of growth over desired value. It's growth for growth's sake, and that never works out for any scenario, whether it's company value or your man's dick. 
Financial gains from financial gains of derivatives of value that don't actually create value is not a good combination for an economy. If we truly don't make anything new or just do something different off of an existing service, such as hospitality or food delivery, we're going to see a similar snapback to the big banks. Slack, the workplace messaging company, just got bought in, in uh, early December of 2020 for, by ruling class hack Mark Benioff's Salesforce for over $27 billion. And in my opinion, Slack is a much better company than either Airbnb or DoorDash. At least they actually sell a unique product. Any 16-year-old with a driver's license their mom's minivan could do what they do. A workplace messaging service is much harder to create, to create and implement. Okay, so this all sounds really not good. It's not. But I don't want to be too pessimistic. There's always a silver lining to almost anything. I talked about decentralization a couple of posts ago, and I will probably get that to a podcast eventually, and what it could mean for a lot of things. I believe that decentralization could cause a really good thing to happen that would help to alter the course of the post-pandemic pandemic. In the LinkedIn study that I cited in the prior post that studied moving trends in the work-from-home era, a lot of smaller cities and communities are getting a lot of pull, and this is a very good thing. If we can get more people to go to those smaller cities and live in smaller suburbs and spend money on local businesses, we could see a dramatic uptick in the health of the middle and working classes. If there is anything I dare to be passionate about, the revival of middle America is one of those things. It's nothing short of criminal what that area of the country has been subjected to over the years. If hundreds of thousands of young and ambitious people were to flock to that area of the country for a better opportunity for themselves, we all should encourage it. No one deserves or needs it more. They've been reeling for a long time. Additionally, other hubs could pop up as well. We're seeing this in places like Chattanooga, Tennessee, Columbus, Ohio, and Indianapolis, Indiana. Not exactly New York or Silicon Valley. Only that they're a lot better in a lot of different ways. Austin, Texas is already huge. Tampa, Florida is getting swamped with young people. Expect this trend to continue. Places like Boise, Idaho, Salt Lake City, Utah, and Tulsa, Oklahoma are getting flooded with potential suitors as well. If we can encourage people to forge westward by way of their own best interests and those of the places that need it, their brilliance and power will come with it. If that happens, we can hope to level the scales. Steve Eisman had a choice to make. The clock was ticking. He could either die with the rest of the dying or survive. In the world of the post-pandemic economic pandemic, this is what we must do as well. We must do what we can to keep moving forward and to help people. After a long period of waiting, he told his number two three simple words. Sell it all. Pandemic number two, the trust pandemic. On January 24th, 2020, the Senate Committees on Health and Foreign Relations held a closed meeting on COVID-19. The beer virus had not hit the United States yet, but the spread in other parts of the world, particularly in its country of origin, China, was beginning to show, show cause for concern. No one knew what it was yet. No one knew the horror that was about to be unleashed on America. On February 20th, the stock market crashed. Selling of financial securities rapidly intensified, which drove down the value of global stocks in the fastest fashion since 1929, the start of the Great Depression. In the next two months that followed, the Dow Jones shed 8,500 points, about 35% of the value of the stock market, 
which also was a number that hadn't been seen since the Depression. Roughly 40 million Americans filed for unemployment benefits. The COVID-19 recession had begun. But not everyone felt, felt the sting. In fact, quite the opposite. On February 13th, Republican Senator Richard Burr and his wife sold up to $1.7 million of stock in 33 separate transactions. He was later quoted stating that the coronavirus is, quote, more aggressive in its transmission than anything we've seen in recent history, end quote. Republican Senator Kelly Loeffler, who was currently engaged in a pivotal runoff Senate race in Georgia that she ended up losing, sold up to $3.1 million in stock while simultaneously buying into Citrix Systems, a company that had done quite well since the crash. Her husband is the chairman of New York Stock Exchange. He'd probably give sound financial advice, wouldn't you think? Republican Senator David Perdue, also in a runoff in, in Georgia, also who lost, sold up to $825,000 in stock while paying nearly $200,000 in Dow DuPont, the company that makes the personal protective equipment that serve most of our healthcare workers. Comes in handy in the middle of the biggest public health crisis in a century. Senators Jim Inhofe, Republican from Oklahoma, and Dianne Feinstein, Democrat from California, were also involved in these actions. They sold stock, too. Now, in the private sector, this would probably be considered a little something I and the Department of Justice like to call insider trading. Insider trading takes place when someone with private information, hint, a private Senate hearing, acts on a trade of a financial security without the public knowing. It gives that person an advantage and can play the market to their favor. It's not fair to everyone else because everyone else is not on the same playing field. The United States Senate signed the Stock Act, an act that prevented private information by public officials to be used for private Senate sector gains in 2012 under President Obama. Only three senators abstained. Richard Burr was one of them. Both the aforementioned Tucker Carlson and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez called for Burr to resign, the former on his nightly television show. The rest of the senators were investigated briefly, but then the dogs were called off. Richard Burr is still currently under investigation. The COVID-19 pandemic is a scary thing. We shouldn't be deathly afraid of it and avoid living our lives because the facts that show it doesn't affect most of us all that much, but it is still so disruptive and unfamiliar that we can't help ourselves but become a little uneasy. But there's something scarier about the pandemic that not a lot of people are talking about. The deceit and the power games that have been played within it. The Richard Burr and the United States Senate scandal is just one of the many things that absolutely petrify every single American. If you want to lose the trust of somebody, lie to them. We've had more lies during these last nine months than any time period of my entire life. It's hard to keep track. The numbers are so large. They just keep coming. A lot has been made of the societal unrest that we've seen, ranging from Black Lives Matter to taking automatic weapons to state houses in Michigan to the current protests in New York from people who support local businesses. These people have been called a lot of names. Racists, Marxists, anarchists, socialists, corporatists, the whole nine yards. They've been demonized by whichever side of the ruling class aisle they oppose. But I have another theory. Maybe these people aren't Marxists or racists. Maybe they're just something else. Maybe they're just angry. Angry at what, you might say? I can pick numerous places to start. Governors prohibiting people to run their businesses. Lockdowns going back into effect for the second time in nine months at the time of this writing. Nightly curfews getting imposed on citizens like we're in some sort of dystopian modern police state. Having nothing to do but sit at home, wait for an unemployment check that could take months to come, 
and watching the sick fucks in our media and social media poke the bear over and over again. Politicians telling people how many bites to take of food at Thanksgiving on Christmas before you have to put a mask on at the dinner table with your closest friends or family surrounding you, and then watching as they've rented out private restaurants with no masks or social distancing. No, seriously, that happened. It's hard to trust anyone, especially in charged times. The hypocrisy and lies from our ruling class and the, quote, experts during this time have caused people to become angry and resentful, and understandably so. But when people are angry and resentful for a long time, something worse begins to fester. Despair. Despair, when you feel that there's nothing you can do to fix or solve anything, is a powerful emotion. It makes you feel out of control, like there's someone pressing a thumb to the scale that's weighing against you. That is what has caused the chaos. That's why it's not just one group or another, skin color, political affiliation, etc. It's everyone. When you have no hope, when you give in to despair, you have nothing to lose. So why not chuck a brick through a window of a local tanning salon? It's not like anything matters or whatever. The distrust in our ruling class and the mob that supports them have been growing for a long time. It's been shown in several significant events, such as the rise in popularity of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. But unfortunately, I think we're putting the we're past the point of mere distrust. I now think that we're beginning to despise them. The resentment isn't at one another. It's aimed up. Everyone seems to be turning against one another. In a conference call after the election, leaked footage of Democrat politicians screaming at each other over Zoom was released. According to projections, they should have done much better in the Senate, House, state legislatures, and government races. But they didn't. The progressive left screamed the establishment left for not capitalizing on the populist wave that engaged much more of their base than ever thought possible. The establishment left screamed that the progressive left for pushing their radicalized agenda calling for defunding the police and Medicare for all. Look for a similar shift in the coming months and the years on the right as well. Who knows what will happen in the future? Will it become like the Democrat Party and split down the middle? Will it lean toward the Trumpian base, the establishment base? Only time will tell. In the meantime, most people have realized that you can't tr they can't trust a damn thing, and this is a problem. Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube are censoring information at the highest clip we've ever seen. Google is suppressing content even more now. There are talks of secession again, as hilarious as that might seem. They're literally colluding with the government as we speak. And let's get to these, quote, experts. People is wi are wisely asking this question that none of them want to answer. When we fucked up so much stuff, why should the people that most consistently fuck up be considered experts? It's a valid question to ask, and people are asking it frequently. This has both positive and negative effects. The most positive effect is that we are willing to demand accountability for those who declare themselves to, our, to be our betters. If a doctor tells us something on national television, we want evidence to back it up. If they're wrong, we want them to own it. If an investment advisor tells us to buy a specific stock and that stock tanks, we can and should be demanding explanations as to why that person is wrong. Accountability is a very good thing. We need a lot of it if we are to regain the trust of the back of our population. The most negative effect, however, is the same thing we hope to regain through accountability. We don't trust anyone anymore. In fact, the distrust is so high that people are disputing science, the most evidence-based discipline in our world, in incredible numbers. For example, millions of people have stated openly that they're scared to take vac vaccinations when they become available to the general public. Maybe Jessica Biel told them that they're going to give their kids autism. 
And recently, the government has now mandated that everyone that works in a private sector over 100 employees in a, in a private sector company must get the vaccine. So these two sides just, you know, ruling class gasming all over each other. This is an absolutely ludicrous and unfounded claim of garbage on both sides. But will the same be said for our other institutions? I would say that, in the short term, it's unlikely. As I've stated with statistics in our post on decentralization, people are losing trust in our systems in a rapid freefall-esque pace. We will have to contend with that for certain. The pandemic of trust is very contagious. It spreads everywhere and gets into everything, including the mind. Pandemic number three, the mental health pandemic. Earlier this year, the University of Notre Dame declared that they were not going to have students go on any spring break. Instead, the students were going to go straight through for four months and finish the semester due to COVID-19. Throughout the last year in 2020, I've contacted numerous friends at my old university, which adopted the same thing. While we were used to have both a fall and spring break, both of them were cut out to minimize the spread of the virus onto campus. Instead of a spring break, students were given two four-day weekends spread across the semester. The university's probably made the right call, the smart call. But two four-day weekends are not even remotely close to the same as one full week off. In college, professors don't care whether a long weekend was had or not. There was still work to be done, mostly pointless bullshit work, but, none the, but work nonetheless. There is an expectation that the students will always be on time. Will always be on all the on will always be on all the time rather. Jesus. That's the thing that a lot of people who are removed from modern academia don't realize. College is not hard because the classes themselves and the material within them are difficult to understand. Sure, there's some of that, but it's not the driving factor. The driving factor for collegiate difficulty is the sheer amount of work that must be done in order to earn a worthwhile degree. You get buried constantly in everything and are in a constant fight to dig yourself out of your own pile of rubble. In talks with my friends, I asked how the transition from schooling from home model has been, and they all said the same thing. It had been hell. The professors, most said, automatically assumed that since there was more time freed up because of a lack of in-person classes, the students could handle more work. That's a faulty assumption at best particularly given the circumstances of a worldwide pandemic. So even more work was shoveled mercilessly on the back of students, pile-driving them even further and burning them out even faster. My best friend from back at college, back at college who works full-time every weekend and has chronic health conditions, said she had to stay up for four days straight just to get through her exams. This is not an excuse for people not picking up the slack and working as hard as they should. I'm all for that. This is a cry for mercy onto a group of young people that has been affected in more ways than people would care to realize. Because in reality, the pandemic hasn't left young people alone. Sure, we don't have a risk of getting seriously ill from the beer virus. That's a good thing. But there are other things that must be considered, most certainly in the state of the minds of America's youth. While this is definitely not related to college rele relegated to the college educated, that is the sample size that is closest to me since I didn't choose any of the other alternatives. The Journal of Medical Internet Research recently conducted a study on this, and the results were just like I thought. 
While small sample size, only 195 students, these figures are something to be alarmed at. Of those students, 71% indicated increased stress. Multiple stressors were those that contributed to increased level of stress, anxiety, and depressive thoughts among that same sample of students. Some examples included fear and worry about their personal and loved one's health, 91%, disruptions to sleeping patterns, 86%, difficulty in concentration, 89%, decreased social interaction due to social distancing, 86%, and increased concerns about academic performance, 82%. If you want to look at how a country will do in its future, you look at the future. America's young people are America's future. If this is any indication of how things are to go in the future, we might be in for some trouble. This is an isolated event. COVID is over, as I alluded to in the introduction. But there will be reckonings long after this is gone, and hopefully people will get and hopefully people get vaccinated. The most impressionable state of development is up until around age five, according to scientists. However, there is another period of development that is looked at by some researchers as equally important to a person's life. Their 20s. Researchers such as Meg Jay, the author of The Defining Decade, have been on the cutting, the cutting edge of this research and have pioneered its importance. The data is in. Those same researchers have predicted for decades now that the earlier troubling patterns in a child's life start, the most likely the child is to be damaged by and or repeat them in the future. If a child witnesses domestic violence, she is more likely to be a domestic abuser. If his parents drink a lot of alcohol, he will drink a lot of alcohol. If their parents are unfaithful, she will be more likely to be unfaithful. It's the classic paradigm of modeling behavior. We all do it, but there are periods in where it matters more than others, much more than others. I'm not a scientist, but I would guess that, while nearly not as extreme, your 20s have the same type of effect on you. This is our first exposure to real life, complete freedom and independence. For most, it's completely uncharted territory. You have to navigate it completely by yourself. In other words, it's time for rapid development of your adult self, not your child self. This is an incredibly important time. I would also suggest that it's probably not a good thing to have that time constantly disrupted by chaos, which this last half a decade and particularly year have held for us in near constant fashion. While young people are in constant states of absorption, it does not matter where they're at. They will take in what they need to take in in order to be best create a model of how to exist within the world. These last few years have led to, a, led to a rapid increase of mental health awareness and issues, particularly in young people, because of disruptions like we're seeing with the coronavirus. I would argue that the pandemic, and the things that have occurred within the pandemic, have been the single greatest bomb dropped on most of our lives in terms of shaping how we navigate within and view the world. This has changed us forever, irreversibly in some ways. The way we act now will, in large part, contribute to how we act within the world in the future. Living in chaos and upheaval is not a good thing. It's why many immigrants try to come to the United States every year, why people move from shitty towns to better ones, and why bad marriages eventually end up in divorce. No one wants to exist or live where they have no certainty or feel like they are not safe to exist within. When the opportunity comes to leave, people generally do not do so. That's an unknown that most of us most of us do not want to face. But usually, the devil you know is not better than the devil, the devil you do not know. And let me take you back to our friend Tucker's monologue. Do you think this rapidly declining quality of our education is going to help this? No reasonable person would. This lost year of education 
is going to have major ramifications later on. Globalization has taken a serious hit since the pandemic took hold, but the world is still very much global. Americans have to compete not against just the best in their own country, but the best in other countries as well. Countries like China, India, and South Korea are trying their very hardest to usurp our dominance to ensure that their children can get access to all the good stuff that hard work provides. This misstep in our education system is surely to speed that process up. I don't believe that higher education does most people any more good than it does someone who does not go in terms of who can live a successful life. But I do believe that the children that are not in college are going to be affected by this mentally in more ways than you might seem. Without a proper education, a sharpening of the mind, children will succumb to their lowest impulses on nearly everything. They're highly impressionable people, as we've mentioned. We can't afford to have a whole generation of Americans coming up with this attitude on many different things. Additionally, the trauma from the, quote, from home era is going to affect children dis disproportionately as well. The whole not looking at streams and learning nothing thing is a very real thing. Children aren't meant to be that way. They may be mentally stimulated, but a lot of things. Looking at a teacher on a screen versus engaging with one in real life is the equivalent of watching internet porn compared to having sex. It's two completely different things, and they provide inverse benefits and problems to one another. Too much instability is not good for a person to handle, especially one that does not have the stability of someone older than them in terms of their values and place within the world. Young people need stability in their minds in order to thrive in the world around them. Too much imbalance, and that can get thrown out of whack incredibly quickly. That quick imbalance can lead to devastating consequences, which we are now seeing with the rapidly rising cases of mental illness across America's campuses and schools. Our minds are a must to take care of if we want to positively impact the world after the pandemic. But after the pandemic is over, what then? Will we continue to slide down to our lowest impulses? Or will we create an avenue to tackle this post-pandemic pandemic? The day the COVID-19 pandemic is over and the disease is eradicated from mass effect on the earth will be a monumental day, if that day ever comes. Perhaps the most so in a generation. It will be a victory for all, of the, this, for all that this horrible, invisible enemy will have its ass handed back to it and sent into the phantom zone for good. But there's a catch. When the pandemic that has consumed the world is over, more will take its place. We will be feeling the effects from this year for a very, very long time. You see, we don't get to totally remove problems. We only get to replace them from our lives. It is up to us, however, if those problems that replace the pandemic will be better or worse than the pandemic itself. Through these pandemics that will follow COVID, we will have the choice as to which route to go. I hope we'll navigate them correctly and with more haste than we have the last one. We should be better to one another than we have been. We need to be if we are to weather the storms that are to come. Hang tight. We're almost out of there. If the people in charge let us be. Okay, guys. I'm sorry I didn't mention it at the beginning of the post, but please, I hope you guys took time yesterday to remember 9-11. It's, you know, I love our troops. I love our military. One of my best buddies in the military is in the Marines. He was in Afghanistan recently. Um, it's, a, it's a horrible day, but it's one we need to remember. And, you know, God bless all our veterans. God bless the people, the first responders, the people that died, the victims of that tragedy. And just remember why you're able to listen to this. Remember why you're free. And own the day. Open your mind. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you guys next week. Hop and stop and hop and
like a rabbit When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it I lay back in the cut, retain myself Think about the shit and I think it well How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?